good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Zalavari, and it is finally time. It is here. It is the big week. It is Le Mans week. Welcome, everyone, to the 24 hours of Le Mans for 2020. I know it's not quite what everyone is used to. I know it's not quite what everyone was expecting, but we are here, and we are ready to experience this fantastic event. And so today we're going to start off our trifecta of endurance chat episode, bringing you up to speed with what's happening in the world of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And of course, we got to uh, start it off by giving everyone an overview of what's going to happen, uh, the 2020 preview. And today, doing that with me, I've got Kiwi Chris and I've got Austin Zetsman with me today. Good evening, lads. Hope you're doing well. Good evening. And to anyone listening, yes, I am from work. Yes, I am doing work on Monday morning. Yes, we're recording this in Le Mans week, so we're, we're running it very, very fine. Uh, how about you, Cookie? How are you doing? Well, it, it's it's uh, you know it's just a delayed start to my intro, just like the delayed start to the twenty four hours of Le Mans this year. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, hey. There you go. There you go. So, okay, we, the twenty four hours of Le Mans, we know it very well. We've all been watching it for quite a number of years. But what what is this event, and why should the general public, the general motorsport public, why should they care? Because it's one of the Blue Ribbon events, not just a sporting event or racing event, one of the Blue Ribbon events of the world. It's something that's steeped in history since the very early days of motoring. It's something that catches the psyche of anybody who's a motorsport fan, whether they're endurance fans or not. They always pay attention to them on what happens here. And it's just a spectacle unlike anything else you'll see. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, the fact that this event, the 24 hours, has been going almost continuously uh, un- as in unbroken since 1923. And only two two or three years ago had 260,000 people turn up to watch the 24 hours. That is a quite an achievement uh, in itself, just for an event, let alone a sporting event or anything like that. That, that is an a- astonishing number of people. And it's it has this old adage uh, with it as well, Cookie, that everything comes back to Le Mans. It all comes back to Le Mans. Uh, now, why do people say that? Why why does everything go back to Le Mans? Um, okay, first off, I just who all who says that? Everyone, literally everyone. everyone. Okay, all right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like I mean. I, I'll, I'll roll with it. I just feel like you coined the term. I feel like I haven't heard anybody else say it but you. But hey, I like it. I, it's, I didn't it's a good coin term. it. It's, uh, if, uh, before me, it at least was in the uh, Truth in 24 documentaries. At yeah, least Jason, Jason, Jason Statham said it before me. Okay. And gotcha. when Jason, Sta- right. Jason Statham says something, you better listen because otherwise he'll punch your head off. So, like, I should, I should read the transporter script and just whatever he says in the transporter script, I need to take I mean, yeah. Yeah, or death race, Fair. or or death. Ooh, that's an even better one. I feel like that's more appropriate and more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> more anyway, um, it all comes back to the Uh It is a twenty-four hour race, so just the aspect of a twenty-four hour race in general is um, <clears throat> difficult, and it is uh, kind of there's some mystique behind it because people don't just associate people doing that; they just kind of think in their heads immediately in NASCAR race or Formula One race, something like that, IndyCar race. Uh, it's two and a half, three hours, four hours from my tops, and that's about it. So to hear him go, like, 24 hours, it's usually the first thing you're like, whoa, like, does that, uh, that actually exist kind of thing? So yeah. I think that's uh, that's a, an immediate draw. And number two, it's, um, it's legendary at this point. So uh, 
the clout that uh, you would kind of maybe need it to have in the modern times for a sport to kind of exist either has to have a lot of like history clout uh, legendary status or it has to just really be mind-blowing and, and it's a slow burn the 24 hours of mob but it's a great slow burn and i'm just lucky that it's you know it has a good chance and opportunity to keep staying around just because of its history and what it kind of brings to the automotive industry but also to motorsports just growing up like that was um even if it wasn't like the, the race i wanted to watch every year like i knew that there was still like just 24 hours of like whatever you were doing there was literally a race going on for that time you know like there was always like five hours from now there's gonna be a race like it, it was kind of that cool aspect where you're like i'm surrounded by a, a race going on right now and I, I don't know i think as a kid when i thought about that as a race fan like that was the coolest thing and i think that's really what if you're going to draw from it, that's what you should be drawing from it, in my opinion. Yeah, so. I, I got to say, when they did the virtual 24 Hours of Le Mans this year, I got that same feeling of, like, you go to bed and you wake up and there's still that same race on. You can tap into it again. You can see where everything is. It's just like, like You know it's going to be there, yeah. that kind of thing. There's like, there's like a, yeah, there, there's that aspect to it where it's, it's just a cool feeling as a race fan. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I just want to scroll back a bit and touch on something you said, uh, just in that little spiel there, Cookie, the, the automotive industry. So the reason that this event was created was people weren't sure that cars could do 24 hours in a row. That was that was the draw. That was the, the, the test, the experiment. Could a car run for 24 hours and still be running at the end of it so that's where the event the event of the 24 hours has its roots and because of that it's become a test bed for automotive industry in in experiments with their cars in developing new technologies and we've seen some absolutely amazing things come directly from people and teams racing at le mans and you know things from like the hybrids you know Yes, they had them in Formula 1, but this is where they really took hold, I think, at Le Mans and the World Endurance Championship. Uh, all sorts of technological technological innovations, put my teeth back in, <laughs> can be traced back to what they did in sports cars. And yeah, even super simple stuff that you'd think of nowadays, like things like disc brakes that were first run in anger at Le Mans, things like aerodynamic bodywork, the first understandings of aerodynamics were because of what was developed at Le Mans, things like air brakes and uh, different engine configurations, different fuel and all those little things that you don't really think about on a car they all really trace their way back to this race because of the challenges of running a race for 24 hours. Cookie, you were about to say something? It's one of those, <clears throat> I would not going to say like cowboy sports, but it's definitely, you know, where there can be this, um, you know, rose-tinted, glorified aspect to it, especially like a gladiator, almost modern gladiator form of it, where the cars have a physical aspect where they get beaten in, um, the drivers are exhausted, that kind of thing. And so it gravitates like Hollywood stars to it. Um, and so you get uh, a bit of that kind of glamour every year of either in a storyline or just somebody in a team ownership or elevated to a position just to wave the, to, uh, wave the French flag every year at the start. You know, that kind of thing where and then obviously all the public circumstance, usually outside of COVID years uh, where you have like bunch of stuff that happens before the race too so yeah uh, there's, there's a, a lot to it there's an element of glitz and glamour and it's very interesting that you you touch on the the hollywood aspect of it and i think 
this year in particular, there might be a, a bit more of a, a more casual interest from the, the quote Hollywood crowd because of what was uh, a, a movie that was made and released last year. Um, of course, uh, Ford versus Ferrari that came out last year, uh, a, a movie which put Le, Le Mans, one of the best Le Mans stories, in my opinion, right at the forefront of popular culture. And it's it kind of shows uh, just how fascinating an event, a 24-hour racing event can be. Hmm. That movie, I, I'm sure assuming you guys have seen it, it captured the story pretty well. Um, Ford, you know, being burnt by the sale or by the non-purchase of Ferrari, I guess you should say. And yeah, sticking it to the man or trying to stick it to the man. <laughs> the problem the problem I have with that entire thing is the man is like a old, frail Italian man who just wants to race cars. <laughs> true, true. This is true, but this is essentially what it was. Um, and, once, and once it got past the whole, that's clearly not Le Mans, that's clearly not Daytona, it was a great movie. They actually did a pretty good job. I think it ra- rode the line very well of being appealing to race fans and being appealing mm. to movie fans. Yeah, my fiance, who's not even at all into motorsport, enjoyed the movie. Nice, just dropping the fiance line in there. Just fiance. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good point. And too many times in popular culture, when racing gets into the mainstream like this, it's all. It seems to be very much like a cult classic sort of movie. Like you look at the Steve McQueen movie Le Mans. Who, by the way, Steve McQueen never actually raced at Le Mans because his insurance company wouldn't let him. Um, he did race at Sebring though and finished second overall uh, in and a Porsche 908. And that's why we see yeah, pseudonyms. Yes, exactly. <laughs> pseudonyms, which we'll talk about a little later on in our uh, entry list podcast. Um, but yeah, so the Steve McQueen Le Mans movie, it's basically motorsport erotica, but as a movie, it doesn't really uh, have all that compelling story, dialogue, or characters. Which is fine because it's a great <laughs> it, it's it's a great testament to nineteen seventies motoring. But <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, like, I, well, I, I'd agree to, to a certain extent. But at the same time, I'm actually pretty surprised the amount of positive feedback from people that I thought were like would I don't know, kind of dismiss it. But they were more or less like, yeah, it was good. And I don't know if they're humoring me or whatnot. But I mean, <laughs> it seemed like people were definitely like had more positive things to say about it and i was just kind of like you don't have to like i was in my head i was just like you don't have to be that nice about it like it wasn't like it wasn't that crazy great of a movie they're like oh it was great and i'm like so it must <laughs> have been just i mean enough of the sequences in it and it had a, it had a good enough of a storyline and um kind of suspense enough and people obviously don't know the story so like and again from <clears throat> it kind of doesn't matter i mean like yeah if you actually look at it and how like Lamar and all of those entries and how that usually works the big guy usually sucks in these situations and kind of <laughs> Ford is that big guy here um where it's kind of like well you know like now well that's kind of you know it's great that they did it but it's almost kind of frowned upon how they did it you know despite then they just like left you'd almost be like well they're just they're in it to bag it and then leave but still, it's a good Hollywood story, and it just happens to be a bunch of key players in the sports car lore, and at Lamar specifically. And I don't know, the shots were great. Um, yeah, it was weird seeing Atlanta on a speedway going backwards, but um, as like part of Road Atlanta, I think, yeah, or something. Is this for Ford or, versus Ferrari, right? Yeah, yeah. Ford versus Ferrari. Or if you're if you're not. in a if you're across the pond, Le Mans '66. Because you can't... Uh, not, not 1971, in parentheses, Lamar. No. Yeah, of course not. 
Um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about what Le Mans means in popular culture, what it means in motoring culture. Um, of course, something we haven't mentioned is that the first ever Grand Prix was held at Le Mans. Um, it would be another 50 years um, between uh, Formula One becoming a, a thing in the, in the, and the World Championship becoming a thing uh, after World War II. But the first ever Grand Prix, the first ever Grand Prize motor race was at Le Mans. So it, it's not just steeped in sports car history and endurance racing history, but also just worldwide motorsport history. It is really, you know, you joke about me making it up on the spot, but it, everything does come back to Le Mans when it comes to cars. So what is the task then? We have... 24 hours, oh, we have a 24-hour race, we have the French countryside, and we have, this year, 59 cars battling for, for, for honours, both overall and in class. So what is this challenge? Uh, longer night, um, cooler conditions, so less, um, yeah. less heat, uh, you say, potentially less rain. You say that. The uh, forecast this week for Le Mans is actually pr- quite summery. Um, the temperature today, for example, is 36. Oh, the dream. <laughs> uh, yikes. The dream. And, and according to my Google, it's going to be late 20s all race weekend. Oh, the dream. For, for people who are freaking out about me getting very excited about temperatures over 30 degrees, keep in mind that I live in Australia and 30 degrees is like a cold summer's day here. So I I would be quite excited for a 30 degree week at Le Mans. Sweet. But I, it's yeah. still going to be a longer night running this year. And because of the way this is a street circuit in the middle of the countryside for half the lap, you're getting by just on your headlights and the goodwill of everyone around you just notice that you're there as you're overtaking them at maximum velocity yeah maximum velocity in this case being around 340 kilometers per hour heading down into indian arnage mm. which is a little terrifying honestly uh, something else that we should mention is the fact that the track being 13.6 kilometers if you get stuck at the wrong spot there is no way home and cookie i think uh <laughs> i'm sorry for putting you on the spot here but but you and your the the team that you've been a fan of for many years toyota have been on the wrong end of getting to a point where there's no way home uh getting stuck on the circuit quite a few times you want to share some stories with with the class yeah let's see there was two on the front stretch uh while leading uh one heading in the porsche curves while also leading uh, one heading into Indianapolis while also leading. Um, another one on the back stretch while second, uh, not leading, but no, I think leading. Yeah, sorry, that was leading too. Uh, one in <laughs> second, closing on the leader, heading into Indianapolis again. Also, uh, yeah, like I said, in second. So. <laughs> uh, it is a little bit of a, a, a Torres story. Because the rule is, at Le Mans, you can't get any outside assistance. So if your car stops by the side of the road, it is only the driver and whatever tools that he has on his person or on his vehicle uh, that can work on the car and try and get it back to the pits. And if you don't get back to the pits, the car is retired. So there is that extra element of serviceability at the side of the road and getting back to the pits. 
And we've seen some amazing recoveries from people and teams getting their cars back to the pits. I, I remember uh, ARC Bratislava a few years ago having three or four incidents on the same lap trying to get the car back to the pits. And it took them 40 minutes to return that car to the pits. But they got it back and they were able to repair it and they got it back out on track. It didn't live once it got back out on track, but they got it back on track. Mm-hmm. Whereas as Cookies just uh, so plainly stated for us, uh, others are not so lucky. Well, I think the, one of the high-profile ones that people might remember is the Delta Wing. Oh, uh, when it got, yes. When it got nerfed off at... Um, In the Porsche at, was Curve. Was it Corvette? Curve, either way, one of the curves. Yeah. And it, uh, a couple of hours at the side of the road just trying to repair the car, get it a few hundred metres into pit lane. Yeah, it was... Just, just couldn't get it fired up again. Yeah, and there's that that priceless image of the team mechanics who had all come down from the pit lane to stand on the other side of the wall and offer instructions and insight to the driver uh, to try and fix that car up. And yeah, as you made mention, he was there for a few hours and the, the image of him finally giving up the ghost and coming back behind the wall and being, you know, consoled by his, his pit crew was... One of the one of the well, one of the, t- the timeless images of Le Mans. I think that was the 2010 race, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. with a young Ant Davison in a Peugeot, who was the one who nerfed him off in the wall, if I recall correctly. Cookie, do you do you, do you remember that back that far? Um, I'm sorry, which one was this? Uh, the Delta Wing crash in yeah, that was 2012. 2012. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got my got my wires crossed a little bit. Um, fantastic. So we we should talk a little bit more about this track in particular. And Kiwi, you and I have put together something that we've used one once or twice before um, for the for segments like these. Uh, but no reason not to use it again. It's a very very good segment, I think. So yeah, let's. This is uh, Kiwi Chris and myself taking you around a lap of Le Mans. Here's where it all begins. Thirteen point six kilometers around the circuit de la Sarthe. On Sunday afternoon, when the trickler waves, it will signal the start of this 24-hour event. 24 hours around this gruelling track. First up is the Dunlop S. A sweeping right-hander brings you into this left-right chicane, all uphill. Prototype drivers will be approaching this about 260 km per hour, while the GT cars are going to be much slower. It's important to be stable here on the brakes, because this corner can catch you out if you're not paying attention. As you exit the corner, you crest to see one of the most famous sights in motorsport, the oldest, longest-standing Dunlop Bridge anywhere in the world. Plunge down from the Dunlop Bridge and you approach the Forest S's. This beautifully cambered left-right chicane opens you out from the Bugatti circuit and towards the main road. It's imperative here, if you're a prototype driver, to make sure you're not losing time to the slower GT cars. But this is a 24-hour event. Sometimes, patience has to be at the forefront of your mind. If you are impatient through this section, the consequences can be immense. Crest the hill out of the Forest S's and you approach Terce Rouge, one of my favourite corners on the track. This is the corner that takes you from the permanent racetrack and slings you down the highway towards Mulsanne. All it takes is a little dab in the brake, tip the car into the right and floor it as the road drops away and opens up. Take a breath, 
because you've got a long journey ahead. So you've now exited Tetra Rouge and the real magic of Le Mans begins. First up, the road that takes you away from the township, the Rue Ligne Droit de Honduras, more commonly known as the Mosan Strait. It might as well be a road into the unknown. It's no wider than a two-lane highway. The Arnco barriers are right next to you. You know they're saying you can't see the forest for the trees? Well here, you can't see the racetrack for them. It's almost an eerie feeling for drivers making their way down the Mosan. It's dangerous too, there's traffic. The fact that it's a public road so covered in muck and oil and all sorts of rubbish from everyday traffic. And if poor weather comes to play, well, God help you. And then you add night time running. As a spectator, this piece of road is fascinating. For a driver, terrifying. In the old days, the prototypes were heading 400Ks down the 6Ks of the Volsan Strait. With the addition of two chicanes, this speed's now closer to 340. The GTs are still hitting 300 as well, so they're not exactly slow. And these chicanes are no joke either. One to the right, one to the left. They're identical. Or so the drivers will tell you otherwise. And it's very easy to make the smallest mistake here, which should cause a major issue. There's a big spin, there's a big accident oh, coming down towards the chicane. One of the toys, I think it's the number one car, but I'm not... The biggest test though comes at the end of it all. Mustang Corner. The prototypes come in at full noise through the right kink. And the GT is not far off that. And as soon as the car settles, you're hard on the anchors for that 90 degree turn to the right. There's a fair bit of runoff and a lot of curve. And misjudging your position here, or misjudging where you are in traffic, can be fatal to your chances in the race. Use every little bit of curbing and astroturf on the outside of Mulsan Corner as you bring the throttle up as early as you can to power down towards the fastest section of the track. As the night approaches, the sun will dip directly into your eye line down this narrow chute through the trees, making it almost impossible to see where the track ends and the grass begins. There's two kinks from Mulsan Corner down this hill, both taken entirely flat out. If you're following a slower car, you better make sure they see you before you're up alongside them. Rocky, do you copy me? Car At the bottom of the hill is my favourite part of the track. The road suddenly bends off to the right, a corner that only the bravest prototype drivers will take flat out, before a hard stop into a beautifully cambered left-hander taken at about third gear. This is Indianapolis, named because it's something you'd probably see at a super speedway more than you would in the French countryside. A short straight takes you from Indianapolis to Arnage, the slowest corner on the track. You've been going at 300 kilometers per hour for most of the last two minutes, but it's time to slow all that down to take this tight 90 degree right-hander with absolutely zero assistance from the track. There's a gravel trap on the outside and a tire barrier to catch you if you mess it up, but you're still a long way from home here. Any mistake at this part of the track could see you watching the rest of the race from the sidelines. So you've survived our march. Congratulations. You're heading back to the circuit now in the stadium section and to what you hope will be a great lap time. There's just one problem. The Porsche curves. You approach the Porsche curves at closer full speed after another full throttle blast up a narrow highway road with a distinct kink to the left. 
then almost without warning, the road goes right. You tip in on full commitment, but you want to balance the car because as soon as you're done turning right, you're turning left for a double apex sweeper, or another double apex to the right. The hybrid prototypes will be averaging about 260 through the section of the track while turning, with the walls right on the edge of the track with absolutely no runoff to speak of. If you catch GT traffic here, you're gonna drop several seconds, but it's better than the alternative. It's very hard to run too wide through the section, and it can be done. We've seen some great battles here in the past, but it's also incredibly easy to put yourself or someone else in the wall and in their race. And accidents in this part of the track are very rarely minor. Got in because big trouble for number 10, Dragon Speed. Again, is that the exit the Porsche curves? Ooh. Survive all of that, and you're met with an awkward left hander at Corvette Corner. There's plenty of runoff on exit. But those equalised stewards, they're watching. And even though your lap is almost complete, it's important to not lose concentration now. You wouldn't want to throw your lap away here by making a very silly mistake. If you escape the close concrete walls in the Porsche curves, a small chicane will take you from that area down towards the last section of the track. Either you peel off here into the pit lane, or you brake hard for the Ford chicanes. A pair of very slow, very tight left-right chicanes. The curbs here are high and are the enemy of lap time, but battering your car's tyres, suspension and steering against these curbs for 24 hours could spell the end of your race. Even though you're almost at the finish line, it's important to keep your concentration. One small mistake here could end your 24 hours. Oh no, he's lost the wheel. The tyre's blown on the Toyota. It's all over now for the Toyota Challenge here at Le Mans. The two cars... Make it across the last kerb with Le Mans painted on the inside and you're greeted by the Stadium of Lasarth, filled with over 100,000 people in that one grandstand. This 13.6 kilometre journey takes only 200 seconds at the seat of a prototype and only around 35 seconds more in a GT car. It takes you from over 340 kilometers per hour to lower than 60 kilometers per hour, testing the absolute limits of your engine power, your braking, your gearing, your concentration, your handling, your management of this race. This is the ultimate test of endurance for man and machine. He doesn't have any gears. You can hear him trying to select the gears. No, three minutes, 47 seconds, and Alan Vanish is out back in front. That's it's the most there. extraordinary thing I've ever seen in motor racing. This, this is stressful stuff for them. Oh, my God, the Mercedes has taken off. That's Peter Dunbrick. Oh, no, it's come to a halt. Oh, the dream no. is over. The dream is over for Hugh Deschonac and Peugeot. Because this is the Grand Prix of Endurance. This is the Circuit de la Sarthe. And this is the 24 hours of Le Mans. Oh, every single time I listen to that, no matter how many times we uh, I hear it, where it's editing or where we're, put, we're putting it together, every single time is goosebumps. And uh, Chris, you did a great job of, of actually putting uh, all those pieces together. Yeah, just whoa, that feeling every oh. single time. <laughs> Yeah, it, it doesn't get old, does it? No, never. Um, there's honestly very few places that give me those sort of chills. Bathurst is probably the only other one. Yeah, and it, it's it's something about the the mix of the the length of the track, the 
emphasis on the public roads and now and, and now like the prestige and the the opportunity like you don't get to race this track any other time of the year you get this little window um for this event and otherwise it is just public roads it's, it's got this amazing sort of i guess you could say aura about it cookie what about yeah. you do, do, do you get that aura around le mans about around the track or are you just too cool for that <laughs> am i too cool for that uh yeah, yeah. If anybody, yeah, there's a, there's a coolometer for sure for Le Mans, <laughs> and uh, I've you know I've clearly gotten to the point of being a fan where I'm I'm at Too the cool higher for, point yeah. of that. No, uh, that that weird explanation alone should disqualify me from clearly being cool. I like that. Um, I because it's a public road and it looks like you're kind of driving into the countryside, and especially the way that some of those shots are done. Uh, if it's higher up a little bit and you get those weird, uh, you know, Italian whatever tree you know vert trees that kind of stuff heading out of tete rouge those kind of shots kind of heading that bowl coming out on the right kink uh, heading down Mosan. i love that and uh especially the night shots they're about the coolest night shots you could ever see in more sports that aren't rally just because there's no lights and i again just something just really old-fashioned raw kind of mystique-esque about that at night so yeah. i absolutely adore uh the night uh, night racing at Le Mans. It's just probably my favorite part uh, of uh, watching sports car racing. That and probably Nurburgring 24. But that's that's almost like that's a whole different story. But that's that's more like scary. Like I'm almost gonna like like I'm cringing watching it because it's all on board. So you're just kind of like I hope they don't die and they you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's all backlit in, internal uh, cockpits. But yeah, uh, I I do. That's probably my favorite part of uh, of Le Mans is the uh, is the night hours. We're going to get a lot more of those this year, so that'll be fun. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll save that for a bit later on when we talk about the schedule for the week coming up. Um, but yeah, the, the the night hours, there is just some something purely unadulterated about driving with the with, especially down like the Mulsan or towards Tete Rouge with the trees you know right next to the fences you kind of tunnel vision down towards those areas and you all you can see is what's getting, being given off by the lights of your car or the cars nearby you it's it's yeah, it's so, it's so very. I, I think people describe it as as you you feel alone in the universe because all you have is the cockpit, the car, and your radio, and that's it. Um, so again, if you if people after this go go and watch the road to uh, sorry the uh, truth in twenty four documentaries, thank you. Um, they, I think I think Rockefeller in particular talks about how uh, how alone you can feel at Le Mans in the darkness. Uh, which is kind of cool. It, it's yeah, kind of spiritual in a way. Do you anyone else get that impression, or is it just me? I I do. For no. me, when when Cookie was talking about the night running, it's just so soothing, almost. Yeah, I I will agree with that. There is nothing. Okay, so the night running for for me and Chris in Australia is right when we wake up. Um, mm. would normally wake up. So there is nothing more ethereal in motorsports than waking up at far too early in the morning because you've been hyped for the last 24 hours putting on a lmp1 on board and just kind of zoning out and just letting it carry you through the morning <laughs> yeah yep yeah. nursing a hangover in my case of course of course <laughs> uh i mean yeah and part of that too is the uh a lot of the late night crews that are on for some of the uh for the english speaking channels and or international feeds that are on have a lot of the uh, older commentators and stuff that, or they just have like great guests that have a lot of 
Lamar history, and you just get to hear a bunch of cool stuff that you've never heard before, ever, from anybody. And a lot of it is really funny, just really fascinating, interesting, like, you know, and I love that aspect to it as just, like, kind of a fan of the history and, like, historian almost of the sport a bit, where you just get that perspective and just get almost kind of like an unplugged bit of it. It's yeah. almost just like you're listening to, a, like, a sports car live radio station, mm. but it's 24 hours. Man, I'm telling you, it's just such an awesome feeling, and that's why I feel like... Uh, watching all of that stuff, like obviously Indy 500 for me, Amer being American, Daytona 500, all that stuff, and 12 hours Sebring, all that, all that, you know, that was the stuff that I like to do. But I liked it where it just kept going. Yeah. And there, were, you know, and that's really, I, I think, if I would ever drive it home at all, the um, especially like what I, because I'm, I'm trying to remember what I said like the last few years we've done this, and I probably pushed a lot of other things, but like, if anything, it's just like. I'm trying to emphasize the vibe this year in terms yeah. of like how I was feeling when I first watched it and what really got me into it. And that I can't stress that enough for people that have never watched it. so Or that have started watching it. Everyone's going to start somewhere, and it's really cool to share those those sort of starting experiences, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of my best things, favorite things as well, is people coming in, fruit new to them on going watch this and then being able to tell them all about it and say right, now this is the cool part it's like that it's like that old xkcd comic where it's just like uh whenever someone learns something new you get to be the one that goes oh you're today's lucky person and you get to you get to share this great wealth of knowledge um mm. that has been sitting in the back of your brain for the past however long and many years you've been watching this event you get to share it with someone and yeah. see them fall in love with it as well yeah, it was like when when we did our track walk together at Bathurst, and I took you around for the first time. Oh my god, that was an experience. Oh, yeah, it's like that for this exactly. Um, and the rookies in this field will probably have that same feeling of, oh my god, what the hell am I doing as they go their first night stints? That's going to be terrifying, amazing, <laughs> and I love it. Um, yeah. Speaking of track walks, what's your favorite part of the track, guys? Oh, Indiana. Yeah, good call. <laughs> Oh, you guys are, yeah, see, you guys always say that. I feel like both of you... Yeah, but you always say it's, it's such a good complex of corners, though. Like, come on. You come down, you come down a hill, you're going VMAX, absolute VMAX, 300 and however many kilometers per hour. You have a cambered right-hand kink into a bowl that you take, that, that just, it, it just, it just sucks you in and hugs you in. And then you've got to gather that whole thing up to stop it on a dime for the slowest corner on the track. Like, how is that not one of the coolest pas passages in motorsport? Uh, most on straight without kinks. Oh, okay. You're one of those, are you? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, obviously. I mean, yeah. come on. That tests like, man, machine, physics, uh, uh, the road construction, um, you know, yeah, shall I say more? Yeah, but, that's fair. And if you, if you basically got on what, what breaks physics, you surely should say the Porsche curves. Because, my oh. God, physics did not apply in that section of road. Dude, I, do you understand that Peugeot held the, the fastest, like, the speed trap at, at Le Mans? I, it still, I believe, does at doing, like, over 240 miles the, an hour. The, I mean, like, a Peugeot going over 200 miles an hour. The the Kiwi. WM, uh, was, what was that one? The, like, the Project 400. Four five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a count because they said they had to destroy a car in the process. Yeah, well, they were like, we can't win. So what we're going to do is we're going to blow up this car and set a, set a land speed record in the process. <laughs> well, God, it's still, it's still an official lap and still with the, with the speed too. And yeah, so this is true. See, like, I, as much as, as much as, 
the there is something classic about the no the chicanes on the Le Mans uh, Le Mans straight uh, the Mulsanne straight rather. Uh, from a engineering standpoint, having the chicanes in there actually creates a bigger engineering problem, bigger durability problem, because you're not just getting it up to that speed and holding it there. What you're doing is you're getting up to that speed and then bringing it all the way back down again and then building it back up. So all of a sudden, instead of having one zone where you're at full full tilt for quite a long period of time, you now have four zones where you're cycling between 100 k's per hour and full tilt and coming back down so that's extra brake wear extra uh, problems for the transmission extra load on the engine it does present a different engineering uh engineering problem yeah i i guess i i just think though that i feel like the old chicane less lamont had the ability to still differentiate dramatically between high downforce and low downforce setups and you would, and the cars had to specifically do, uh, you know, more things correctly, like with how their design works. Yeah, you know what okay. I mean? Like, um, so if, if the, you, if you were down on power, you could trim out and it, you know, you could bring an advantage to you more easily in that, in that regard, instead of like now where it's like, you don't have, it, it, it's, you still have that distance and you still have that ability to like, maybe get a higher top speed and have maybe a little something more long downforce but you're still breaking more you know you're still working in the advantages and strengths of maybe something more high downforce yeah so I, maybe that's where i was coming from and not necessarily from like an engineering standpoint but that's fair from like a strategy standpoint but still yeah i but i mean for an actual answer probably uh Mulsanne corner oh yeah Actually, now that they reworked it uh i'm not sure we'll see but I think it's actually the same. They might have just redone the outside to it. So I quite it like the the, the the kink because it, it used to be literally just the intersection between Mulsanne um, and Arnage. So it used to be just a more than 90 degree right hand corner. Now with the kink uh, leading into it, it kind of uh, gives you a, a little bit of a, a point to open up and make a move. But looking at photos from the old days where they would be going down that back straight for five kilometers at full speed and coming to a dead stop essentially for a 90 degree right hander with no runoff like that's terrifying and then and then you were saying earlier about adding the night to it imagine being in like a, a prototype car in the 60s or 70s or 80s even in a nine six uh nine five six um at 400 oh, kilometers thanks. per hour in the middle of the night and having to go from you know, 380 Ks down to 70 Ks for a right-hand corner. And if you miss the breaking point, you're in the middle of the town down the way. Like, yeah. If if, if that was me, I would have put off at the Mosan restaurant halfway down and stopped for, not, stopped for the sunrise. Oh, I would have stopped well, to change you, my you pants. You would be doing that anyway. Sure. So. <laughs> oh, I'd, be, I'd be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, One thing that I don't think people have mentioned, which I think it might be... Quite possibly my favorite corner in all of motorsports, not just of this track, is uh, the, the corner that brings you onto the Mulsanne Strait, Terche Rouge. For me, I think that corner has every single element of what I love in track profile. You have a, a, a hump 
just before the, the the turning point, which means the front of the car gets very light, you it's a feather on the brake in a prototype and, and a bit more of a bite out of it in a GT car, a clipping point at the apex, and then the track drops away and opens out. So it really encourages you to be bold and to take as much of the exit while the car is fighting understeer the whole way through. And because you have that kilometer long straight afterwards, it really rewards being brave and i think that's one of my as i said one of my favorite corners in motorsport let alone at le mans and just that entire first section is just really really cool with the forest s's and everything as well it's just a cool track like, yeah is there any part of the track you don't like seriously i mean it's just all amazing even the even the Fortune Canes are good in their own way. Yeah, they're great because they're a different challenge. I mean, it's mm. you, you come out of the Porsche curves where it's all downforce, all uh, commitment, and then you have to wind everything up to just smash curbs as hard as you can. It's it's yeah. like you have this really weird dichotomy of perfect flow versus aggressive. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you were driving a V8 and you went from... Um, Phillip Island to Gold Coast. Island to, yeah. It's quite literally exactly the same thing. It's terrifying. Uh, brilliant. Uh, yeah. I, despite how how spaced out all the corners are, it, it everything offers something a little different. I think that's also a part of the Le Mans magic. Uh, yeah. So we've talked now about the track. We've talked about the challenge of getting these cars around. Now let's talk about the classes. There's four classes this year for the Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, two prototype classes, two GT classes, uh, two amateur cl- or two pro am classes, and two professional classes. Uh, so let's let's have a quick overview of each of the classes the first one the ones that will be driving for overall honors is the lmp1 class now they're in their final le mans race as the top class after 20 years plus of uh, competition so it is the swan song for lmp1 and, and there's been some fantastic stories through the lmp1 era not least of all audi's 13 victories and then porsche's hat trick on return and then finally i guess toyota getting their wins as well against no one um <laughs> sorry cookie <laughs> um, hey fun <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we can't have a lamont podcast without without uh ruining you a little bit so so be cheeky. yeah so so what role does the class serve what why would someone want to be in lmp1 because it's the pinnacle of sports car racing and it's the it's the go fast cars uh you know the fastest go fast cars in the sports car world. So, I, I mean, as much as people love IMSA um, and DPI, you know, even IMSA fans and 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 uh, and fans of the American sports car series still go like they're not the fastest, um, you know, and openly will say that and miss seeing like the big Le Mans prototypes, the ones that are going the fastest, all that stuff. So. Um, even from kind of you could you could almost say quote unquote you know rivals, there's still something to be said about having the top the fastest dog you know mm. in the uh, at the track. So uh, I think there's that's a huge factor to it. But also it's just kind of that's where you usually see a lot of creativity um, from different aspects of the uh, I'll just say car and automotive world. Yep. Um, so just a lot of different kind of uh, selling points to have for the top class. Yeah, it's many solutions for to solve the problem. And I think that's really important that you not touch on the creativity because uh, Kiwi, the technology development in LMP1 is really where this class shines. 
It has. In the last decade, you know, when we had the three-way battle between Porsche, Audi, and Toyota, they had, what, three different solutions for the same problem of how to get a hybrid and how to get the most out of your hybrid on track. Then you had Nissan come along with their crazy way-out-of-the-box idea of the front-wheel drive, because that's brilliant, a brilliant design for a race car, guys. Well done. Well, I, I mean, uh, just... I mean, I mean, I mean, okay, you've, you've brought this up. Okay, so now now we have to have this discussion. You brought this no. up, so now we have to have this discussion. Um, people around the world, possibly most mostly in America with the Super Bowl ad, would have seen the Nissan GTR LM Nismo, the car that they entered for LMP1, did like half a race, didn't get classified, and then canned the project. Now, the reason that car exists was to exploit the downforce regulations mm. of the rear of the car. So the LMP1 regulations stated that like at you had a maximum downforce level at the rear, or something to that effect, to, if, for the long and the short of it. So their idea was you bring the entire aero balance of the car forward by having it front-wheel drive, maximize the rear downforce, and then all of a sudden you have a much uh, lower drag concept uh, which is an absolute beast in a straight line without sacrificing more drag at the end of it. And had that car actually had proper contractors that had set, uh, achieved the design profile of things like the hybrid, we would have seen something amazing. But as it happens, they chose a poor company and they got canned. So that's I was cr- going to mention... I was going to mention that anyway because I actually thought the project was a good idea. It but, was. It was a great idea, but uh, yeah. they they put their they hitched their wagon to the wrong team or the wrong they designers. They did, but it's just technical technological innovations like that because the rules, while they're somewhat constrictive, you have a lot of freedom in, in interpreting them. Yeah, or had had in the yeah. one era. Nowadays, that's going, it's, that's going away. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in a sec. But I think we'll t- touch on your point again on the creativity and the the differing solutions. At one point, when we had Porsche, Audi, and Toyota, you had a V six turbocharged diesel up against a. Uh, V6 turbocharged diesel with an electrical flywheel providing 6 megajoules of energy per lap up against a naturally aspirated V8 petrol engine with a super capacitor providing 6 megajoules of hybrid power per lap or electrical power per lap up against a twin turbocharged 2 litre V4 with a 8 megajoule battery providing a hybrid power per lap and they were lapping within a second of each other for hours and hours on end it was an amazing technological showpiece and that's what the LMP1 class is really about it's about a technological pushing the barriers engineering exercise with the best professional drivers the most well-kitted teams and uh, original equipment manufacturers and we we still had that to an extent with the private well privateer teams the non hybrid teams that are, that came in, you know we had Dragon Speed they've gone now but that was a cool project the Bro One that was yeah not a bad car but the rebellions this year and the Janetta like uh, no Janetta no Janetta this year no, no we'll Janetta now that's we'll, right we'll talk about yeah. that in our LMP One or our uh, mm. prototype class breakdown um but yeah we we are missing the Janetta we have a bicolors to replace the Janetta. Cool. So you replace it a dumpster fire with a literal fire. <laughs> <laughs> oof. Big <laughs> oof energy. <laughs> so that's that's the, the top class. Yeah, there is a little bit of a divide between the pri- hybrids and the privateers. And there is a, a the, the Toyota should have a definite advantage. But that still doesn't mean that there isn't anything for the privateers to fight for. Well, we've seen it in the past. If Toyota slip up just a little bit and the BOP is going to be such that it might be a bit closer this year. 
if they slip up by a couple of laps, the privateers could be in the game. Absolutely, and it was only three years ago that uh, all of the the, uh, the hybrids had problems, and an LMP2 car almost won the race. So it is certainly not unheard of. Um, speaking of LMP2, uh, what's what's that all about? What are what is the the LMP2 class uh, for Le Mans all about, Cookie? Uh, that is more of a gentleman driver category, but for the prototypes in a more spec class uh, where it is cost controlled. Uh, which is a huge problem uh, in all of motorsports, but it especially ru- uh, rears its ugly head in sports car racing. Um, although Le Mans does capture, because of its history and all that, a lot of entries, uh, it still has issues with holding entries consistently year after year, the same ones, um, and kind of really nurturing a fan base kind of based on that stuff where you see in Formula One and other ones. So, yep. uh, But... That's where LMP2 and uh, GTE, which we'll get into later, uh, will come in, where they actually have the ability to kind of get some of these gentlemen drivers that are able to spend some money, not a ton, but get them very interested and involved in more sports, especially at Le Mans. And uh, this is a really good way to do that, but also give them something very fast to drive, very something exciting, um, and also gives another category class for some of the factory teams, GTE and LMP1, to kind of contend with as well. So it does a bunch of different things, but... I very much enjoy this class. As I say, is P2 the fastest way for a gentleman driver to race? Yes. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Because in, in, in modern pro, uh, sports car racing, yes. Yeah, 100%. Uh, unless, you're, unless you're, say, Ben Han- uh, Not oh, Ben right. Hanley. Uh, Henry Kidman. Yes, uh, and you buy an LMP1 car. Uh, it's it's a great thing that you mentioned the the fastest uh, fastest way to get around the track uh, if you want to spend your own money uh, six hundred and fifty horsepower from a Gibson V eight engine uh, across the field you have a choice of one of four chassis options an Orica 07 a Ligier JSP 217 a, a Delaro P217 and the Riley uh, which we won't <laughs> which we won't see because it's kind of terrible um, but you you do get prototype racing at a very good price point and at a very good speed it is kind of terrifying to think that these cars lmp2 cars the pro-am category which this year has 24 entrants are as fast as the lmp1 cars from 10 years ago when they were when these cars initially came to Le Mans and were doing lap times as fast as Mike Rockenfeller, Benoit Trelleway, Andre Lotterer in twenty eleven, that to me is kinda scary. But it always puts on a show and with the driver talent in this class, both um, from professionals and from amateurs in this class, it is just an absolute hotbed of activity and it should be something that keeps a lot of people interested. Yeah. And you mentioned those drivers, you know, you got the professionals, you got the up and coming professionals as well, who do appear a bit in this class, um, you know, supporting the, being super silvers, if you like, yep. to help meet regulations. So they're another, another army add into the mix. And it's just fantastic battling. Uh, if, if I'm assuming listeners would have watched some ELMS racing, which P2 is the top class. And those races are just off the chain. Yeah, if you haven't watched ELMS, there's uh, quite a few of them. Well, they're all on YouTube. Uh, if you've got some time, all it takes if you want to watch it at double speed, two hours, you flick on an ELMS race. It doesn't matter which race. In any ELMS race, you'll have a good time and you'll really see what the P2 class is about. Uh, 
Now, Cookie mentioned something really important there right at the very top of this description. It's an amateur driver playground. So when we talk about amateur drivers and, and pro-am racing, how does that work for one of the most prestigious motor races in the world? How, how, why is amateur drivers a thing in sports cars? Amateur driving is basically, or amateur, the pay drivers, is basically what sports car, keeps sports car racing afloat. It's, the, it's been the absolute backbone of his existence. And having pay drivers on the grid allows teams to go racing, allows teams to maybe fund a two-car operation when they could only maybe have a one-car operation. It gives those gentlemen drivers who, well, we use the term gentlemen drivers. They're some of the quickest drivers around. People like David Hennemeyer, Hanson, Ben, not Ben Hanley, um, who am I thinking of? Ben Keating, yeah, drivers of that drivers of that ilk, who, if they wanted to turn pro, could probably make a fist of it. But they're so successful in their day to day job, this is a hobby for them. What a cool hobby! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and it's just, you know, it's just a bunch of bunch of rich guys going around having a lot of fun on the world's biggest stage. And what that does add as well is an element of, of driver strategy and different pace mm. in each of the cars as well. So in LMP2, you're mandated to have one silver or bronze rated driver in each car. And that driver has to do a minimum of six hours across the 24-hour race. Uh, so that means that at four, six hours, you have a very quick driver behind the wheel. Let's not make any mistake. You have a very quick driver behind the wheel, but it is someone going up against you know some in some cases former formula one talent like uh ooh, like jean eric verne or mm. guido van der or or, or uh, someone like nicholas lapierre who is basically a god in p2 exactly or, or will stevens or you know a former indy car drivers like juan pablo montoya or you're, you're going up against some of the best drivers in the world as a pay driver, as an amateur. So you have this really interesting uh, mix of uh, these drivers who are very quick, but not quite at the absolute pace versus the absolute pace and how you intertwine those strategies with each other and how that resolves on track is, is a very interesting thing to take a look at. So if you're new to sports car racing, try and keep an eye on when uh, a bronze or a silver rated driver is in the car and how their pace stacks up versus the rest of the field. Um, and we will go more into that when we, talk, when we do our uh, prototype and GT uh, class breakdowns in other episodes. So keep an eye out for that one. Uh, speaking of GT, we have two GT classes as well. We have GTE Pro and GTE Am. Now, why, where, how does the GTE class uh, differ from the prototype class? So GTE cars are the cars that are more recognizable. Um, if you had a, a lot of money, you could go buy a Porsche 911 or a Ferrari 488. That's the dream. It's the dream. That's the dream. Yes. Uh, a bit faster than my pink Mitsubishi Mirage. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these are the tricked out weapons, basically, for the road. The difference between the cars now is only the, is only the drivers because the cars are the same. Well, they're basically the same. Between the GTE and uh, yep. GT Pro and GTM, yep. GTE, yep. The Pro class, yes, it's got only got eight eight cars this year, but they're 24 of the best drivers, period. Well, 22 plus, 23 plus Cooper McNeil. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. this, the only difference in these cars, generally speaking, you can count in seconds. Yeah, it's, it's it, incredibly tight across the entire field. Yeah. And that's because of BOP. 
Yeah, so BOP, of course, is uh, almost uh, one of those un uh, well I, things that you can't mention. Uh, un- unhappy sort of it, it's 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 what keeps GT racing close and allows all these different platforms to compete against each other without one of them without having a spending arms race like the late nineties. Um, so yeah, it's it's GTE is basically the most recognizable sports cars that money can buy turned up to eleven and put on track against each other. <laughs> yeah and it's always always great fun to watch cookie did you have something that you wanted to add there i mean it's the closest racing all like consistently now at Le Mans all the time because the bop is very very close with all of them and uh they're a factory team so they usually know how to maximize every cent you know of uh performance pretty much out of those vehicles to the bop that they're given and uh most years it's very very close so they they just run like just so close to each other that you just you cannot make a mistake and a lot of times those little mistakes are what costs the, some of these teams to win so yeah exactly i think last year there was 17 gte entries and for the first four hours there was about 17 of them in a line uh for gte pro that were just absolutely nip and tuck for for hours upon hours on end and it was only when uh a few incidents started to come, uh, happen through the field that that battle started to break up uh so we've talked about bop we've mentioned it once or twice what is bop how does it work how does it equalize the speed between each of these platforms you all want to give us a, a, a two-minute rundown? I can't speak for that long. Uh, no, Kiwi, definitely, because I'm not... Two minutes is in a rundown of anything. So. <laughs> basically, basically, the TLDR, three different body shapes, three different types of engines, three di- oh, different... You know, all sorts of different braking performance, aero performance, all sort of that. BOP is designed to give the cars simple performance over the course of a whole lap. A whole so lap while, or, a, or a whole stint? Over the course of a lap. So while cars might be faster out of corners, might have better you know, high-speed stability, better through high downforce turns such as Porsche curves, ultimately get them across the same off the finish line in around that 3 minutes 50 mark, so they're within a second. Yeah, and it's important to note there that it's across a whole lap, not a whole stint. So what that means mm. is the way you win BOP races is by doing things that your competitors can't in re- in relation to your driving capabilities or your stint management, making the car comfortable, making it, giving it wide setup windows, those sort of things. Things that the BOP can't control, can't mess with. So, you know, you don't gain, you can't gain an extra 15 horsepower or uh, have a slipperier car with uh, less aero because that will all get balanced out in the end. It's all about how you make the car able to drive, how easy you make the car to drive. And that's what will give you results in a BOP category. Yeah. And you saw that, at Spa, uh, last round, the, these guys raced at. You know, during the course of the race, cars were stronger at different periods of the race, depending on track conditions, uh, wind, aero, all that sort of stuff. These cars are very well balanced at the moment. And we know that it's just going to be a cracking race. And they're guaranteed to put on a show. Absolutely. And, and that's just the pro class. <laughs> that's just the pro class. The AM class as well, Kiwi already made mention, it's basically the same cars, but you have the extra element of amateur drivers. And in comparison to LMP2, you actually have double the amount of amateur drivers because you are mandated in GTM to have a bronze-rated driver and at least another amateur driver, so bronze or silver, in your car. So all that means is that you've got people like uh, Paul Dallalana, who is a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's a Canadian 
mining CEO, I believe, something to that extent. Real, real estate? I don't know, there was really rich Canadian. At all. It, it just, it's, uh, anyway, stupid rich is what we're saying. Up against ah, yeah. people like Jerome Blakemolon or Giancarlo Fisichella or, you know... Jan Magnuson. Jan Magnuson, exactly. <laughs> so very, very, very big names in worldwide racing. And these car, these teams are all in the same race together. Uh, so you have that extra element of of an additional AM driver element alongside some of the best race drivers in the world. And these cars are quick. These cars are terrifying. Yeah. And with 22 of them on track, it's going to be an absolute madhouse. And and you also get the, uh, up, this is where you get the up and comers like your Max Van Splitter and, and you know, your Porsche Carrera Cup guys and Larry Tenvorder. Yeah, and Matt Campbell for for those on mm. our side of the world as well. You know, those who have up and coming when Matt Campbell's cave arrived in the Porsche ranks and just going, right, let's see what we can do up against these big boys and make a name for yourself. Exactly. Now, this, initially for people who don't watch sports cars, the idea of having four different classes of vastly different speeds on track at the same time is a little weird, uh, but it really does bring an extra element to racing. And it's something that I don't really think that I could watch a lot of racing without that multi-class element in anymore it just adds such an uh, such an interesting dimension to the race doesn't it cookie i was just saying uh more classes the better really in my opinion mm. now now what why why is that why, what causes you know that what, what makes you say that why do you think that uh it's just a, a different element to the race uh obviously unique to uh endurance racing or anything that's multi-class but uh uh the talent level uh so you have more opportunity for varying levels of talent to be on the track at the same time uh closing speed closing rates uh it's a huge deal and it uh, factors into uh, ultimate lap times for a lot of drivers um some of them might be a full second faster than other drivers but might be consistently slower than a lot of other drivers and how they uh are able to manage traffic and overtake and also put themselves in dangerous situations where they can get into accidents and ultimately crash so i feel like it is a really really huge factor that is very unique to uh, kind of sport, uh, motorsport, really. Um, and it provides a really awesome challenge, especially at night. Yeah, and sports car racing in particular. And we've seen some horrific accidents uh, when people make the wrong decision in traffic and make contact with a faster or slower class. And I think two of the ones that immediately spring to mind are uh, at from from early in this decade alan mcnish and ant davison in the 2011 and 2012 races respectively mm-hmm. making contact with am class ferraris in their lmp1 machines yeah uh, absolutely horrifying incidents uh davison actually had a pretty significant injury from that as well didn't he yeah he broke his vertebra um and that i don't think was from the impact with the wall but rather the impact of landing uh, again so for those who haven't seen this particular incident going into the mulsan kink the the section just before the 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 breaking point for the 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 corner uh davison in the lmp1 toyota just slid it down the inside of a gtm ferrari that wasn't quite paying enough attention the ferrari made contact with the left rear of the toyota at 300 kilometers per hour and it actually spun the Toyota sideways, which then took off, did a full uh, barrel roll in the air, and came down on all four wheels and then made con- contact with a tire wall. So, yeah, a horrifying incident. And while Ant suffered some significant injuries, he, he was lucky that he didn't suffer anything 
career ending. Mm. But it, traffic here is probably the biggest challenge in motorsport because yes, you have the night uh, night aspect as well, which is an extra layer. But for all four classes, it's a different challenge. P one, you know, you got varying speeds of traffic you got to navigate through. P two, you got to focus on passing GTEs while being passed by P ones. GTE AMs, are gen- especially when the AM drivers in the car, are basically just their remit is not to bin this thing on anyone that comes past me, which unfortunately some cars and drivers haven't done in the past. Yeah, and there was like, quite a high-profile incident last year between a GTE AM driver in the Porsche Curves um, where he tried to get out of the way but got his nose chopped off by a Corvette, which ended up putting the Corvette out of the race, uh, unfortunately, and and cause quite a stir uh, in our mm-hmm. channels <laughs> throughout the the next few hours. A lot of and, very angry Americans uh, after that one. And didn't that incident basically lead to the driver basically saying, "I'm out for this race, no more for me." Yeah, the the AM driver said that he was he didn't feel comfortable racing anymore, so it basically. Uh, ruin the entry for that car as well unfortunately mm. um for for that team so it, it is an an added challenge and you know having to navigate those decisions for 24 hours you don't really get a chance to switch off because there is 60 cars on track and even though it's a big circuit you're always passing someone or getting passed by someone yeah uh, it's different in many respects to nurburgring because at nurburgring your car's going so slowly breast differential is so crazy there's a lot more care given yeah I think here, because you're on the ragged edge for the whole race, one, it doesn't take much. And you can easily get it horribly, horribly wrong. And we've seen we've seen people get it horribly, horribly wrong. And it, it doesn't have to be your mistake either that ends your race. I remember uh, a few years ago, uh, Matteo Vaxivier in a TDS LMP2 car just moved over in the braking zone just a little too much um, and completely wiped out the Rizzi Competizione Ferrari. And I mean, by wiped out, I mean he wrote off that chassis. Just he completely destroyed the entire thing. Uh, and it was just because he moved 50 centimeters further left than he should have been and that that was that was enough so it's very much finding a a line between being aggressive and trying not to get involved in other people's accidents and we see we've seen it this year at spa as well it doesn't take it's with um thomas laurent doesn't take much at all yeah exactly right so that is the the challenge that is the event that is what it means now let's talk about how this event is going to run this year of course it was meant to be the second weekend in june the traditional second weekend in june oh third weekend in june rather middle of summer in 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 france uh it would have been um but because of the worldwide situation it's been delayed to september for only the second time in its history can anyone tell me when the last time it was moved to september and what for uh French elections, and I'm going to say 1994? No. You're thinking of when they changed the start time from 4, four o'clock to 3 o'clock. I'm, I'm going to say... No, I don't care. <laughs> <I'm> gonna... <laughs> uh... no it, was, it, was for, it was for something. Uh, like, it wasn't a terrorist thing, was it? No, no, no. no, 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 no. We'll, let, we'll let Kiwi go. We'll let's, we'll let's see if he got, he's got it. I'm going to say it was around a war. Um, so they came back in 1949. So what has it been around then? Uh, no, it has been sooner than that. The last time it has, was moved to September. 1970 something, I think. Right? You're close. You're close. It was when in... Was, yeah? Was there a French general strike in 79? Not 79. It was 1968. 
okay. that there was protest strikes and civil unrest during the summer of 1968. So they moved it to September. Um, so that was the last time it was not held in the middle of June. So over 50 years ago. So that means that we have a very unique challenge for the drivers this time around. Now, we've already made mention of some of the factors, the longer darkness in particular, which might mean cooler temperatures. Uh, anything else that might change because of, uh, well, anything else that you can think of just simply about the change in date um, for that the drivers will have to contend with? I think the longer darkness is going to be the biggest one. It's almost five hours worth of darkness. It's, um, temperatures, if if it wasn't going to be very hot, would play better for obviously engines for performance. Oh, actually, technically they get more performance out, so you might have to see you might see uh, teams that don't respond well to that have to compensate, or if they don't, have potential more problems with uh, engines. But if it's going to be so hot, it might not be that much different than what they were expecting anyway. Well, I think I think the longer night hours will mean that the track cools lo- has a longer opportunity to cool. Um, overnight, which might help, well, help performance and mean that there's more strain on components. Um, but but even just the the fact that you have an even number of daylight and night hours, that's that's something that's been unique. Normally, in the peak of summer, you only get about three or four, well, three or four hours of true darkness, and then a few hours either end of, of twilight. So we're going to see the happy hour a bit later in the day. We should talk about the happy hour. Is it's when the cars are at their most optimum, usually in the morning when the te- track temperature is just right, the cars just right, and they go as fast as they can. Mm. And they Good go; time. they probably set the best lap times of the race. Yeah, and I think that'll be a bit later in the day with sun sunrise around seven forty four a.m. local. So I think there's a couple of hours earlier than usual. Yep, and it's going to be a lot more quick running, probably a lot more stress on components as well going to be a little bit of a different challenge yeah um and we might see more in mechanical and reliability than we've seen yeah i i think that'll be a big factor as well um also interesting due to the change in schedule that there is no there's been a complete rework in the schedule for for le mans this year so normally you have a test day two weeks beforehand you have a, a festival of presage and scrutineering in the town on the monday and tuesday and then you have track action from wednesday through uh, wednesday wednesday thursday a rest day Friday and then the race on Saturday running for 24 hours. But this year, because of the condensed schedule, there is no test day. Scrutineering is going to be done at the track and there's going to be no fans at the track. Um, And for the first time, practice and qualifying are fully separated. There is no uh, qualifying practice as we've had in previous years. So we've got this new qualifying format called Hyperpole. Is anyone going to be brave enough to give an explanation of Hyperpole? Uh, I will not be brave enough. To <laughs> Fair. Fine. I guess I keep doing the short short here. So hyperpole. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically is a 45 minute all in session. Yes. Uh, which basically is going to give the cars eight to ten laps to set their best time in traffic. God help them all. Oh, at the end of that 45 minutes, the top six entries from each class will go to a super pole session. Now, so this super pole, correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, essentially going to be a one lap? I, I think it's 30 minutes. Um, oh, th- oh, 30 minutes. Okay, yeah. so you're going to get four laps, maybe five decent qualifying run laps. Yeah, and that's with, yeah, still every single car from, uh, sorry, mm. the top six from each class on track at the same time. 
So that's still 24 cars. Um, yes, you'll be able to have a bit more room to space that out over 13 Ks, one car every 500 meters, but it's still high pressure. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects qualifying because that 45 minute session beforehand, maybe not so much for the pro guys because they're essentially going to make it. I mean, there'll be two GTE pro cars that miss out, but all the P1s will make it. Yeah. Um, but the AM classes, 24 into 6, there's going to be some mad, mad qualifying times coming out early in the session. Yeah, it's going to be fun. exactly. And, and it's a far cry from what the qualifying format has been in previous years, where it's been basically a, a, a practice session, but the your best lap time set the grid. You know, last year mm. you had three two-hour sessions that you could set a quali lap in, uh, and, you know, it was a free-for-all in any of those sessions. So the the change to... to isolate practice as its own entity and give qualifying its own little thing uh where it's going to be much higher pressure and much more searching for setup is is an interesting one and it's got a few implications so we've already talked about the traffic uh and the the lack of the worrying in the pro class something that might fly under the radar here is that it actually means that each class will be split on the grid. You won't have an overlap of particularly GTE AM and GTE Pro cars uh, overlapping in the grid. So they'll all be segregated, um, which means every class will be only fighting itself um, for for its grid splots. What what do we think about that? I wonder then if that means we might see more of the AM drivers start. Okay, because they're not mixing it with the pros in any sense, so they don't need to uh, to to worry mm. about that. Yeah, get their six hours out of the way a bit more early if you can, because of course you know the the earlier you get the pro the amateurs out of the way, the uh, professionals can come at the end and curb stomp the competition. Ideally, well, you say that, but. If you look to GTEM's result from last year, it was actually the inverse strategy that ended up proving at the line to be the correct one of of backloading your AM time to run at the time when the track's yeah, most rubbered in. Eating. Yeah. What's that? It's, it's bank eating. It's uh, bank that eating. Too. I mean, you, you can only do it with a certain <laughs> amount of AM drivers really to, to kind of do that. And that, that was such a perfect strategy. Like, I feel like I hope we remember kind of like or that it gets that just gets to be a memorable kind of strategy, even though they didn't win. That was like probably a brilliantly executed strategy that I just feel like we don't see that much of anymore. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully they're brave enough to try it again, even though that everyone knows uh, what their strategy is going to be. So, yeah, a very condensed schedule. I mean, Go ahead. It's kind of in your face, though. They have to, you know, it's kind of like, all right, well, we're going to do the same thing, but. You know, you have to, you know, if we do the same thing, you have to do the same thing too. Or like, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. This It's a superior strategy. So do other people, other teams copy it this year? We'll see. Yeah. One thing we should mention about qualifying as well, it's actually split over two days. Oh, yes. Interesting. So you got two practice sessions in qualifying one, then you got a night practice after that. So while you're saying there's 11 hours of practice, there's really only seven of those hours to get your car right for qualifying quality yeah. yeah which as you've made mention isn't so much of a consideration for the pro class because they have the numbers for it to not really be a problem but for the am classes that's going to be a real challenge to to get it all sewn up uh and and to dedicate the correct amount of time for mm. uh to to get the 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 primo grid position as opposed to you know what is the race the main event 24 yeah. hours and that four hours of night practice on Thursday is actually 
actually going to be really important as well because I'm assuming that that requirement for night driving doing three five laps a night is still there. Yes, I think it's only for rookies though, only for rookies and amateurs, not for for okay. professionals. So they're still they're still over half the grid. Yeah, exactly. So it's still it's still quite a quite a number of people. So that that is the the lead in. I think as well they've lost the rest day on Friday, so they're going they straight from from uh, track action Thursday Friday and then straight into the race. So that means extra stress on mechanics and components. And then you have the race, twenty four hours. It starts a little earlier to to take it to not clash with the Tour de France of all things, because um, that's also <laughs> but, on. Well, is, that, is that the is that the fifth class in the race that comes out halfway through? Oh yeah, yeah. imagine that. That would be scary. Um, you have you have ex- a twist. <laughs> um, you have extended darkness. You have I think the first marker is getting through to sunset on on race day. When you get through to mm. sunset, if you've gotten there, you you know the race has really begun. Then you have twelve hours of darkness to get to happy hour, and once you get out of the darkness, there's still a full WEC race. Still six hours left to go. Yeah, it's uh, sunsets just on eight o'clock. So that's already what five and a half hours in. So that's uh, you got WEC race, night terrors, WEC race, <laughs> night terrors, love it. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting challenge, and I'm looking forward to it this year. Yeah. So uh, finally, we're coming. We're coming to the end here. How do you guys watch the race? If if you were to say to someone. This is the essential list of things you need to to sit down and enjoy this race if you're watching it with me. What would what would you say? Cookie, what would you say? TV and a couple laptops. Nice. Why and what, projectors? So why and another TV? <laughs> and maybe another TV. So why 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 do you need that many TVs? Uh usually uh because it's great advice for newcomers and uh, any sports car fan usually you have uh, a couple favorites uh in yeah, usually in the race and or uh, each class, you have kind of one that you're rooting for or that you're interested in. And uh, it helps to kind of uh, be able to watch it. Also, yeah, people that have a lot of attention deficit disorders like can enjoy maybe having multiple stuff to look at all the time and having lots of different, uh, you know, stimulations kind of for uh, either race streams, live timing or the live uh, kind of global feed. So I don't know. There's just a lot of different stuff that you can kind of kind of get lost in and that's how I like to enjoy it. And Ooh, even shiny. ones that have uh, just natural sounds as well. Oh, yeah. Don't get any kind of... Those are fantastic. Cookie's just like, ooh, shiny, ooh, shiny, ooh, shiny. <laughs> that is my life. So if I can, <laughs> if I can involve, invoke that in uh, my Le Mans viewing, uh, I will... I, I, apparently, I do so. <laughs> it's fantastic. Great gusto. Yeah, and I think you just... You made a, made a really good point there of finding something to follow in each class. I mean, if you if you don't keep track of say the gtm battle that's a quarter of the race in terms of uh action or you know more than in terms of entries that you're kind of neglecting so i think it is really important that for especially for those new to multi-class racing that they have something that just keeps them interested and uh apparent of each of the the classes especially the lower classes it, and it's a good strategy as well because if the p1 race does get pretty boring which we suspect it may do at some point then you've got three other races to look at and go, oh, this is this is off the chain. Oh my god, GTE pros in a bloody boxing match. I can focus your attention down to those. There's never a dull moment if one class is dominating, you've got three others to f- focus on. 
and, and it's important as well that, you know, if you look hard enough, there's always a story. There's always something happening. Mm. And, you know, you might find something in a live timing screen, which was, you know, sometimes sometimes I spend more of Le Mans more per- in, in certain periods watching the times pop up than I do the official feed because that's mm. where the action is. You know, you might notice someone change tires or uh, do a different strategy, have an AM driver or a pro driver in the car against a bunch of AMs, and you can see that lap time ebbing away. And that's, to me, that's quite fascinating. Yeah. When when you had the, a couple of years ago, when you had the P2 leading with the uh, P1, you know, the Toyota chasing. Porsche you know, everyone chasing. Was, uh, Porsche chasing, sorry. You had everyone watching the timing going, 25 seconds, 20 seconds, 15, come on, do it. No, it's been fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's something pretty magic. Uh, and on top of that as well, I would say, here, uh, R-WEC, uh, I think this is an important part of my race watching experience nowadays because it's it's really a great community um, where we've got a lot of stuff going on and it, it, it gives you a sense of... Um, you know, following of, of watching the race together. It's kind of, it's really nice for me, you know, having a nap, waking up two or three hours later and going, oh, hey, everyone who I was just watching with with before, you know, people on the other side of the world, people like Cookie or people in, in Europe, what have I missed in those last three hours? Can you catch me up? And having people just sort of, you know, fill, fill in the blanks for you. I think that's a really, really nice experience. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that everybody should get for this for this race is from our good friend Andy Blackmore, the uh, Spotters Guide has all fifty nine cars on it. Get yourself a little black marker, christen at the marker of doom. That way, you can keep track of cars as they exterminate themselves from the race as well. Yeah, that's a really wanky. That's a really wanky way of wording that. It's, it's you did <laughs> yeah, a brilliant job. And that yeah, that was. <laughs> And, and thank you for putting that plug in there. I complete. I had completely forgot to do that. Yes, the Andy Blackmore Spotters Guide. We are involved once again at R/WEC. Um, so thank you very much to Andy for his continued work in making the Spotters Guide. It is part of the Le Mans essential experience, I think, to have that Spotters Guide because it will have all the information you need. It'll have all the cars, all the drivers, all the driver ratings, where they are in the garage, where they've come from. It, it really is a one-stop shop for information and it it is something that Andy does, uh, you know, with with the support of, of companies and sponsors, but really it, he does it as out of his own uh out of his own back so it's always a privilege to be a part of um bringing that to people and yeah here at rswec we're we're involved in promoting the guide and definitely pick it up so thank you very much andy blackmore fantastic uh anything else at the uh uh, that we need to to touch on or is that really a, a nice 90 minute time slot of of le mans and for new people I feel like we're getting it's a well-oiled machine now, but working real well in terms of our explanations, right? We've had or, five years. Or, of pro- we've had or five we years. Of feed- I mean, yeah, or we actually get you know real feedback and people are like, "What the hell? They, they have, it makes no sense." I have no idea what they're talking about. I was going to say it's been five years of either really good analysis or more likely five years of spouting absolute bullshit. It's gotten more gibberishy, but uh, I don't know. It's uh, it sounds like we actually knew what we were talking about. Well, I, I, <laughs> that's, that's where I feel like we should just end it now. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll end it with a, a glass of champagne at the end of the race. Uh yeah, not five minutes before, five minutes after. <laughs> <laughs> sorry Cookie, you had to bring that up again and with that <laughs> pretty much thank you very much for listening uh thank you very much for listening uh this is part one of our trifecta of episodes uh in the lead up to Le Mans coming up 
uh, tomorrow, we will have class guides for the LMP classes and the GTE classes as well. So we'll break down every single driver, every single team, where they've come from and what we expect from them. So that way you have an idea of where these unknown names are going to slot in the 24 hours of the Le Mans field. And as usual, we'll have our usual fanfare on r slash WEC, all the race threads, discussion threads, any news that breaks. And I've got a little a little snippet of information which says that there's going to be some big changes for the coming years in, uh, in a few of the classes. So keep your eyes out for that. And on top of that, here at RSW, uh, here at Endurance Chat, we will have our customary pre, pre-race show um, in the lead up to Le Mans. Cookie, it's the one, the one thing a year that you get to run and control. Oh, wow. And it's the, one thing, it's the one thing of the year that normally goes wrong. <laughs> yes, all the time, every time, without fail. Absolutely. Uh, also, on this week at Le Mans, there is support categories as well. Uh, Road to Le Mans, two races, and Porsche Carrera Cup. The Carrera Cup race in previous years has been absolutely mental. It's been a, a, a calamity, or a coming together of the English Carrera Cup and the and the German Carrera calamity Cup race. Too. Yeah, calamity. Calamity. calamity and a, come on. But I mean, it's been, it was fantastic no, the year that they ran nothing, up last. Nothing good happens when the Germans beat the British in France. <laughs> Oh, oh, yes. And with that one, uh, I think, yeah, I, that think that's, was I think that's the way we have to leave it. Thank you ever so much for listening. I've been Mike Salivari. Peace out. Uh, how about you, Cookie? How are you doing? Is Cookie dead? You killed him already. Killed him. What happened? Are you there? I'm here. Hello. Like, yeah, I, I, I gave you the whole big introduction and you didn't... Oh, die. shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to stay in there. Yep, that's... <laughs> no, at least... Uh, great. Not least of all to remind people that at the end of the day, we are amateurs and this is an amateur podcast and we're doing the best we can with what we got, which at the moment is a 14 hour time difference in two directions.